Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and I am super excited to be here today with Professor Donna Pendergast. And she's quite an amazing woman, and she is the dean and head of School of Education at Griffith University, and she has an extensive experience. And today we're going to be discussing um, a little bit about what we see as the missing piece currently that we think may help uh, teachers and educators just be able to improve their experience as teachers and also help the students that they're working with by kind of introducing a little bit of neuroscience. And it's really no one's fault that we're at this stage. It's just that we only started to learn a little bit and see more about the brain really in the last 10 years. So welcome, Donna, and thank you for joining us on the Thriving Minds podcast today. Thank you so much, Selena. It's wonderful to be chatting with you here today. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about your personal journey and experience? And for example, how did you become the Dean of Education? That's really impressive. Thanks, Selena. Um, look, my personal journey is as a classroom teacher, I began um, really working with young adolescents in particular. So I was a secondary school teacher and my first year of teaching, um, I was um, allocated year nine students. I had three classes of year nine science and three classes of year nine home economics. And so I was with this really interesting group of learners and um, it it really started to shape the, the future directions for me as an educator because I was working with young people who were going through a whole lot of change. So, you know, they're at a stage of transition there, the young adolescent years. And much of that change is social and emotional and physical, and you can see that. But I was also aware that the brain was undergoing enormous change at that particular time. But that's a few years ago now. It's certainly beyond 10 years ago. And so our knowledge of that was not as deep as it is today. And so as a teacher... Um, I was looking at ways to engage these young people and over the years as I developed expertise and an interest in this area, I came to understand why you know, the, their engagement um, was at this particular stage of their learning was so um, interesting and erratic and very personal and it's because of course the brain at that time is being shaped as a personal process through synaptic pruning and the neuroscience that we now know and love. So to me, that was that shaped my journey as an educator because I really wanted to know and understand how that worked. And I really wanted to build some depth around um, student engagement. So these days, I work in initial teacher education and professional learning for teachers. And I always have a lens when I work in that space around types of engagement, so behavioural engagement, social and emotional engagement, and cognitive engagement in learning. And historically, we really focused on the ideal is this higher order thinking, cognitive engagement, but we have to manage students and and manage their behaviour in order to get them there. And so, um, in my mind, that wasn't quite the, the right approach. I was flipping it and thinking, hang on, if we actually have the ability to cognitively engage young people to enhance their ability at self-regulation, 
so they had a sense of belonging, so they wanted to be learners, then we would have behavioural engagement, then we would have social and emotional wellbeing. And so my focus became up there on this cognitive engagement end of um, learning. And hence neuroscience became absolutely fundamental. So the work I do now really focuses on young adolescent learners and it focuses on the ways in which we can um, optimise their learning through engagement across those different domains, but understanding deeply the neuroscience that sits behind that. And so when you said there's a missing space, I, I think 10 years is a long time in education. It's a long time in, in appreciating learning processes. And we're really um, keen, I guess, to, to work in professional learning of teachers in that space and, and develop their capabilities, their understanding, and equip our young people of young, not necessarily in age, but young as in career, to enter the profession really understanding the brain work that's happening. Um, when they begin as novice teachers. Yes, yeah, so um, I really appreciate that you're um, putting yourself into that learning space, <laughs> that you realise that you don't know what you don't know, like all of us. And that, I think that's the hardest part about um, as we get further and further into our careers, we don't think there's more learning to do. And I think that's that's kind of the issue here, isn't it? Like how do we advance teaching in a new way that isn't using the old guard in the sense that there's nothing wrong with the old way, but there is just these new learnings that we need to integrate. And as I went out of my lab too, to start talking about the brain and its capacity for change and its untapped potential, which is what we're talking about here, is that the brain has this amazing uh, connections that are physical inside the brain and each of them can be expanded when we put in a lot of effort, which is really what learning is, isn't it? And uh, I guess what I'd learnt even in my own life is that that brain uh, <laughs> needs to be prepared for learning and that's what you're talking about. So I guess the missing piece now from a neuroscience perspective um, for teachers that are listening to this podcast or even for parents, to be honest, or even young adults that are trying to expand their capacity for learning is we now know what we didn't know before and that is that the way... Cognition is a physical part of the brain that sits in the prefrontal cortex that is really impacted by stress. And this is where we get to the behavior and um, integrating brain science into behavior and engagement. And this is what we're talking about today, isn't it, Donna? And that's why you listen to my session and also why we're on this podcast together is for people to come to the realization that the brain can be trained with effort, <laughs> physically. Absolutely right. And I think as knowledge workers, teachers are really well placed. But as you, to, to, to do that work and to learn those skill sets, because in a sense, this is um, opening the door to some secrets that have been held for a long time. And suddenly we have available to us a whole new arsenal of, of capabilities around working with the brain. And when I, 10 years is not a very long time in the scheme of um, educational theory and development. So, um, you know, this is new in the sense of educational work and, and how we engage young people in learning. And I, I think that at the moment, 2020, what a, what a year it mm -hmm. has been, and it be, you know, 
it's really a genuine disruption in terms of education and learning going forward in years to come. There has been um, so much professional learning that teachers have done and our young people um, in schools have really experienced learning in different ways through out of necessity rather than an incremental shift. There's been this major shift that's occurred. And so what I'm really interested in from, to hear from you, Selena, is around if we if we look at the year as being a year of both opportunity but also trauma. You know, there's been trauma and we teach about trauma-informed practices in schools and we, we understand that that impacts learning. I'm really keen to know from your perspective as a neuroscientist, what can educators be doing? Um, and I mean doing, you know, at a practical basis in a classroom, in a school, to assist uh, learners to progress beyond this 2020 impact and the, the traumas that it might have brought in terms of the impact on the brain. Absolutely. So what could we be doing? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's so important. So I think there's, there's so many, that's such a deep question. But the thing that I've come to learn is that it starts with the teacher themselves first and their family environment and where they're coming from. And, and as the teacher has more capability of handling the stress that's happened, it makes it easier for them to help the students. And that's a big ask because the teacher's already asked to do so much. You know, they're asked to have top NAPLAN scores, great OP scores. Now they're asked to look after the social and emotional well-being of their students. And I think that's a lot to put on teachers, but it is the facts, <laughs> what I see out there. Um, so what I've come to learn from the brain is that trauma-informed care is excellent, but, but to amplify that, it's becoming now brain science-informed that underpins the trauma-informed because then by understanding the brain and how it's impacted both by stress and now the pandemic, COVID-19 amplifies stress and we can go into that at some depth if you like because it probably, probably does matter. Um, but without that fundamental knowledge, like all education, unless you have the fundamental facts and those facts are based in science, then it's very hard to implement change. And so therefore what's happening in the trauma-informed space, which is very important that kids have places to go to, is that everyone has a different language. But when we talk about the brain, it gives a fundamental basic understanding that no one can refute across all sectors. And so what I mean by that is if you now understand how the brain works and how stress wires the brain to do the behaviours that you're now seeing across the classroom. It just helps you understand where those other brains are coming from and it drives a lot of compassion for you as a teacher to see that it's not behavioural modification you have to do, it's understanding where they're coming from. And that just helps you um, be able to do your work more easily. So if, you're, if I'm a teacher, a new teacher, let's, let's just talk about these poor new teachers entering this classroom and, you ha and now you're standing in front of, you know, or sitting in front of, you know, 26 different brains that are all completely differently wired, coming from homes and environments that are very different. So in fact, you're dealing with 26 different brains. But the way we have to teach, we have to teach thinking that they're one. 
you're teaching to one brain that's going to take the information at exactly the same rate and exactly the same way and that's really difficult. So from a, from a young teacher's point of view, it really matters like what they do the first thing they wake up in the morning and prepare their own brain before they even enter that classroom. Um, and I'm just talking about the brain. It's not about the person because we all have one and we all have similar things going on, to be honest. So the first thing that they can do from a teacher's perspective as they're entering the classroom is really prepare themselves um, in a way that mitigates the stress that's going to hit them when they hit the classroom, for example. And because the, the bottom line is the students are going to be a reflection of you and how you're handling things. They're going to completely mirror your behavior. So if you have 50% of your class acting out, it's probably because you're feeling really stressed from what's happening in your life. And they're just going to be mirroring that behavior. So that's one thing to understand first. The second thing is to understand that cognition, the way we have traditionally taught what cognition means or thinking, cognition is actually a physical part of the brain. And each of us have a different capacity depending on how our brain was wired by stress and the environments our brain grew up in. So there are two major things just to, to understand first. And, and there's a brain science behind just those two big facts. And from a training perspective, when we're thinking about helping kids learn, it's really preparing their brain for learning. And this is where you get to the engagement question. Because unless we prepare their brains to have improvements in the physical part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex, or way we can modify the amygdala, which is the bottom part of the brain, which handles stress, without those two things being prepared, which some schools are doing actually, um, they spend a whole semester just preparing kids for learning. And then they do the learning after that. And I think that's very insightful work that's going on in other schools um, or in sc some schools. So these facts, which you're talking about, Donna, really matter. And we need to help our teachers because without that f those fundamental facts, it's really hard to do effective learning for students and engagement in learning. You know, really what we're about is in, in our society is helping people become learners, isn't it? Because anyone can learn facts and then forget them and do well on an exam. But becoming a growth mindset learner is something that is a gift for your life. And um, if you don't mind me, I'd like to tell a quick story about, you know, you'd know, quite, I mean, all your teachers are going to know Carol D Dweck's work about fixed versus growth mindset because she's the guru in your field in this space. And I know all her works across all the schools. But what I've, what I've seen really interestingly, you know, I've seen at the PhD level, someone with huge scores, like a top, top student, but she has a fixed mindset around performance. So unless it goes her way, she can't cope. And she has no, and, at, and now she's come to a point in her life, so she's gone through primary, secondary school, university education, she's excelled. But now when it comes to an, an area where, which requires a lot of new learning, that's not fixed in its learning capacity, meaning you've got a lot of learning to do that you won't even realize it because it's not graded learning. Now there's a lot of struggle happening. 
And so there's now the um, what I'm seeing is running away from it and not wanting to change and now quitting. So I think what we're trying to do in this new way that we have to be for the future is we need to create people that love learning, don't we? Because that's what we we have to pivot and change so fast now. And this is what you're talking about, how the teachers did that when they had to do it. And no one would have, I mean, we've been trying to do this for, for years, haven't we? Like get to online learning and, and the universities as well. But then when they had to do it with, with super fast, it happened. Whether the experience is good, that's yet to be, you know, really worked out, but I'm sure that will improve with effort too. So, you know, people can pivot when they have to, but when we, when we have these no deadlines or timelines, it's very difficult to do that. But I think this comes from developing what Carol Dweck likes to call a growth mindset. How I see it, um, Donna, and for your teachers out there, it's not a growth mindset. It's getting to know that your brain has untapped potential and seeing the inside of your brain to see all that untapped potential. No one can see that. We've never shown it to people in an effective way. You know, and this is where neuroscience comes in. Selena, what do you recommend? then that teachers need to do to really understand that untapped potential and to optimise the, the learning opportunities using a neuroscience approach? So I think it's going to require, it, it requires um, rewriting textbooks um, or adding to them, not rewriting them, but really this is a preface. I, I see neuroscience and preparing the brain for this learning and being able to handle um, generations of waste stresses wired the brain is a preface to the textbooks because I think the pedagogies and everything are very well developed and I, and I don't see any rewriting of any of those textbooks. I just see a preface like um, coming in to our programs, our learning programs and professional development programs and then also for the students themselves to, to get to really see that untapped potential. I, I really see that teachers are going to be coaches. So I'm hearing you say that this is a really intentional approach. So using all the tools that we have out there as educators, that we add this intentionality around the brain work in terms of the physiology and the implications of that for the learning. So if we're using a particular pedagogy to really understand what potential does that pedagogy lend in terms of the um, the brain work that's occurring there. Exactly. And so we actually we intentionally identify that as part of the learning process Ex use that as a lever. Yes, and also so when you talk about social emotional learning, that is also a physical part of the brain. And that piece is the most critical piece it's actually the most important piece so there's tons of way of improving cognition and lots of great programs and the pedagogies and the learning and the languages and the arts they're all playing to improving executive function which is cognition but the piece that's missing across the sector is the understanding that social emotional learning is actually a brain physicality in the same way that cognition is. So if you talk to people about cognition, they have no problem knowing that they're changing their brain with learning. And that's what teachers mainly think they're doing, is they are doing neuroplasticity. 
which they are <laughs> on the kids kids brain um, for sure but the piece that's missing and why it's so difficult to get um, good results across 26 brains in a classroom is this social emotional as you've already pointed out piece we call it behavior but behavior is a brain mechanism that can be trained to to with to have improvements so that's I actually see that as the most important critical piece missing across all of mental health and um, learning and whatever you want to call it. Because we have so many terms for social-emotional learning, whether it's mindfulness or um, growth mindset or there's just so many interventions and practices. But what I've found, come to see in the last few years is the missing piece is the brain science that underpins all of that. Linda, I'm really interested in, you, you spoke earlier about the notion of, um, in, you know, 26 brains in the classroom, and we tend to teach one, as if it's one brain in one way and all the rest. And I think there's, uh, as educators, we, we recognise the need to personalise learning and to, but there's still this kind of, uh, I guess, quantum that sits in the middle that we're all trying to aim towards, you know. And I, my, in listening to you speak about it, I'm really interested from a point of view of a teacher about um, identifying where the individual student is at in terms of their brain readiness. You spoke of readiness for learning, but that was really very nice. And they're um, actually getting them, and you know, Vygotsky's theory around learning, around being in the zone of proximal development, so you're right there where the learning can take place. And over the years, we've, we've developed capabilities as educators to work out ways that, that we can actually do that. Is there, are there any tricks with neuroscience that teachers can, can hook into that will enhance that space? Because it's a very particular space, and really, it's at the core of effective learning to be able to identify all of those elements for an individual and personalise that learning as much as possible. So yes. what does neuroscience, how can, how can we be informed better um, of the science insights? So there are quite, quite a few um, easy online assessments that you can do to find out kind of just where that brain's sitting. And it's not about the person, it's about the brain. And I think we have to, so I've come to see, we have to be really careful about this question. Um, because I don't want any more assessments on people that can denigrate their um, how people think about them. So I'm very cautious about this piece because one thing I've come to learn is that you can more or less guarantee we're all stressed out. So the, the worse the behaviour, the more I can guarantee you the more stressed that brain is. So if the behaviour is extreme and bad, just not you can already fundamentally know that that brain is incapable of learning until we do a training to improve their ability to kind of handle stress. Um, and so, yes, there are assessments we could do, just like NAPLAN, like that kind of level of assessment, um, that will give you a score and give you an idea of the thermostat of those brains in that classroom, for sure. That's, that's possible. I'm just very afraid of giving, uh, uh, giving us any more tools as a society to separate people, to be honest, and make them ready. And so people think whether they're ready or not. 
if we could do it anonymously and help teachers just that are compassionate to the children and where they've come from, I'm all for it. I'm just so afraid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're already, we've got so many ways of assessing people at the moment and labeling people. And I'm just kind of a little bit over that when, when I actually want to demonstrate how powerful with training every brain has the potential of becoming. And, and the assessment that's, that is high stakes assessment looks at the outcome of the learning rather than you know the readiness for learning or the processes of learning. And so it's an end point. So it's assessment of learning rather than assessment as learning. Yes, but really yeah, important. Yeah, we, we would love the, the sense that whatever assessments we were doing were actually for learning. You know, they're actually about that for learning as opposed to the end point, um, you know, of learning because that's useful in one way. You know, we know where students are at at that particular point in time. But it's that, uh, as you said there, that brain readiness for learning. Yeah. And being incapable of learning. You know, if your brain is just not in the right place. So practically in a classroom, if you're identifying if I'm a teacher and I'm in a classroom and I'm identifying a whole lot of issues, that's where I could be doing things. So it could come to me rather than, you know, in the way I was very um, interested in your mirroring of behaviour, so teachers and the students mirroring that behaviour. Can you give us a couple of tips about how a teacher might, um, a, might interact with a class to mirror that neuroscience readiness? Yeah, so basically the number one thing is calmness. Calmness under pressure and stress. And that's incredibly difficult when you have 50% of your class acting out behaviourally and challenging you. But I know that the teachers that are most successful are the ones that are the most compassionate to where their children's brains are. And that allows them the strength and resilience to be calm under pressure. And so that's why I said to you, it all starts with the, where the teacher is first. And so unless the teachers are preparing their brains to be teachers on a daily basis, despite all the pressures that they're facing, like we, each of us are at home, whether it's financial or COVID or their own children or what they're eating, how much they're exercising, what they're doing the first thing they wake up in the morning, it is when they start to do those things for themselves is when the is where the compassion stems from for the for the students they're teaching because then they realize oh my goodness I've got a job <laughs> um, I don't have someone abusing me um, I don't I'm not coming from a place where the only food available is McDonald's for example uh, it drives that compassion because then you see, wow, how did those students even get to school this morning and how am I going to teach them mathematics knowing that their brains, knowing what I've just been through to get here, allows them to see just how much of a struggle it is for those students' brains to engage with the learning and, and they're acting out because they can't do the learning and, they don't sh and they're afraid to show their peers how you know they're trying they don't want to be you know everyone knows there's a smart one and a dumb one and they don't want to be identified in those different tribes so they all work out strategies very rapidly of how to be liked by their peers <laughs> as all the teachers know so 
<laughs> because we are social animals trying to associate with different tribes. And so if you know already that you're not the smart one, then you're going to look at very very quickly ways to be the loved one, for example, and that's probably by being the naughty one <laughs> or something like that. But um, I know that's really like top level, but I honestly, Donna, in everything I've seen, this is a new science. Neuroplasticity isn't just about improving NAPLAN scores. So neuroplasticity, in my mind, and why we're having this conversation, is about social-emotional well-being of the children first because that actually is the first steps for improving NAPLAN scores because <laughs> as you prepare their brains... Because when they now leave you... Because I believe teachers are amazing and I believe that they should be paid a lot more and they're the most important part of um, our country because they are our future. And the more we can help teachers love learning to help the students love learning we're going to be able to compete in the world too at a really economic level but it also helps the health and well-being too of the country if our students are more prepared because when they leave the school they might have a wonderful school but they've still got to go home so and so they're going home to parents that weren't given this kind of level of knowledge or training and so that's another big uh, difficulty you know, for the students too when they... And I'm not blaming parents or homes, I'm just blaming the situations that we find ourselves in. So, it, I mean, it's a very complicated question, but I think, you know, helping the students learn the capacity to help themselves will help their kids too for the future make those changes. And I think, and I think that holding on to the complexity as you just described it there, which is so important, it's not, it's not simple, it's incredibly complex and appreciating the role of teachers in that complexity is um, it's music to my ears that's that's wonderful to hear you speak of teachers in that way because we certainly I think as a profession um, often don't get recognized for that important intellectual work and social and emotional work that contributes to the future of everything really. yeah you know, Every doctor, every other kind of profession, whether they're an engineer or a, um, you know, a hospitality worker or, or working in any particular area or a parent raising a child, their experience at school has in some way shaped that. And so we want that to be uh, the type of experience that, as you say, equips them for the future yeah. and to be social and emotionally um, well-being and optimal in their, their ways of thinking. Yes. So, so where, where this came to me when I gave a talk in Melbourne at the Mind Brain Conference for Teachers for Pearson put it on, which is that cognitive training company. And I was sitting in the audience and it was 500 teachers from around Australia. And then I was giving a keynote on the brain. And uh, after, when I set, started my presentation, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing, what teachers were expected to do. So here they were expected to be in charge of the academic performance of the kids. And now I was hearing at this conference, since I'd left school, now they're also in charge of the social emotional well-being of the children, whereas before it used to go to school to learn and the, everything else was someone else's problem. <laughs> and now that had now become integrated in the schools because as a society and a village, we had dropped all responsibility for that. And that really, I, I was just flabbergasted that the level of kind of responsibility for the amount of pay 
Yeah, they were now meant to be psychologists, counsellors, behavioural workers and get them to NAPLAN top scores and OP1s. And I'm like, okay, well, good luck. <laughs> it's so true and it's, um, it is, I, I think it's, it's really crucial that in that environment we have the fundamentals in place. And, uh, and as we started this conversation, we're talking about the missing piece and it seems to me that we've sort of come full circle that, that what we've talked about has actually led us back to the start, that this is the missing piece. It's not missing an absence in totality because we know this, but the last 10 years and understanding of developments in, in understanding the brain and the neuroscience, we need to optimise our use of that and our understanding of that. I particularly love the, um, the way in which you framed it as our personal journey too, you know, that that's we can be the mirror and we can be the role model um, for young people, which we've always been as teachers. But this gives us another dimension to that that can underpin rather than actually be another thing. It actually is kind of either like an umbrella across the top or a platform underneath, depending on which way you look at it. But if we have this deep understanding of the way in which our actions, the way we organise rather than it's saying this works but saying why does it work how does it work because it's actually part of that brain work and we're we're shaping those young brains for the future so it's not just for the test that's coming it's for the way in which that young person is going to be a thinker for life and to have that growth mindset if we can and if we can have some influence on policy educational policy at government level that would be very valuable too um, because they need to understand, as a country, we have to create learners um, because the whole system's been upended, hasn't it? So just having an undergraduate degree now is not good enough, um, even a PhD, to be honest. Um, so it's more than that now. It's becoming creative, um, being able to create businesses out of nothing that didn't exist before and things like So that means you've got to be a learner and a problem solver and um, being a, be, and see yourself as more than just a good at mathematics, for example. So they're sure I sh- therefore I should be an engineer or my dad's a doctor, so they're going to be a doctor. Because doctor and being a doctor and a lawyer, all of those professions have been completely upended also. People just can't see it right now. But I lived in California and we have, you know, lawyers that are now where you can go online and get your contract. Do you know what I mean? So... Doctors are all telemedicine doctors now, so a lot of it's been changed too. So, and it's that, that notion of the non-routine cognitive kind of direction of work, where we don't even know what the problems are yet. We don't even know what we're going to be solving, but we're not daunted by that. We have the capabilities to work in that space, and it's actually exciting. It's invigorating, and you know, we look at that with all the possibilities rather than a sense of or resistance or, you know, complacency. So, yeah, look, it's an exciting future. Yeah, so for your teachers teachers listening, some little daily tools is you can actually um, get calmer quickly by changing your body posture and just try that immediately in the classroom, like stand up tall and become the dominant person in the hierarchy. It's from the animal kingdom. So just pushing your shoulders back or, or even having the kids do that too will calm their brains. <laughs> so these, these really simple little things you can try with the kids 
to get their brains calmer straight away before you even start the learning process. And so it's through practicing through the breathing, um, through their body posture. The old days when we had to stand up with our shoulders back and take our hat off, put our hands on our hip, remember that before we would sit down in class? That works. <laughs> and that's from a neuroscience perspective. So it's simple things. Exactly. Why? Exactly. Yeah, and also um, some other little tools that we can, um, we might be able to add. I guess I have it in the books, but basically, we can help calm the kids down by doing these simple things. Like we've developed these this thing called tracing. So the tracing helps to calm the prefrontal cortex, and we're trying to put it onto an online tool so that the kids could do it straight away before they even start learning. Um, we can do the ice challenge, and that'd be fun for the kids to do, which would completely improve their behaviour straight away. Um, so there's little strategies too that you can build into your day to help you help the kids calm their brain. I think I think we need to hear all of those, Selena. Maybe maybe not in this podcast, yeah. but another. I just think that's so exciting because that's the those strategies are, are just so powerful and when we understand why, I think again, it's going to the why as learners, we tend to know why it works. Exactly. And use it effectively. Exactly. And I, I fundamentally believe like in all advances in, in Western world or in society, it comes from a basis of knowledge and facts that are irrefutable. Like there's a lot of things we don't know for sure, but when we have those facts, it's important they get embedded across the sectors because without the facts, the brain became a vacuum. And so people made up a lot of stuff about it and got away with it and make a lot of money out of it too. And because there's such differences in language across the brain for so many people, that's where the confusion has come. And there's nothing wrong with mindfulness. It's just that kids find it very difficult to do with the way that it's currently taught. Because if they've got a stressed out brain, um, we're talking extreme levels here, from, from at, we, call it, we call it adverse childhood experiences, and we now know that the high number you have, the more you're acting out, it's because you have a more stressed out brain, right? And so in that case, they're incapable of hearing even the first word you've said to them let alone being able to do the deep breathing exercises and let their brain be free. It's just not possible. Do you know what I mean? So being able to say the hands in the ice, putting their shoulders back, it will have the same kind of uh, benefits as trying to implement a mindfulness program, for example, for the younger kids specifically. And the last thing I want to talk to to you about to finish this off in a really powerful note for all the teachers out there, especially for adolescents, and teachers in this younger age group, this is a massive window of opportunity. So there's two big windows of neuroplasticity, naught to three, or as the brain's developing up to the age of three, and then 10 to 14, and for boys, 10 to probably 17. The brain's all is massively opening and growing again, and that's why you get the adolescent brain, as you've heard about, and then you get the pruning happening after that, But but, the opportunity exists because if you can drive in and help drive in positive um, 
opportunities, um, experiences for kids in that age group, whether it's in nature, whether it's helping them calm their brain or exercise or eating well, you have an amazing opportunity. The brain's very plastic and you can really help them develop lifelong skills that can wire into their brain in a hard way healthy habits of living and being and, and ha what you like to call social-emotional learning. Though that, there's a massive window of opportunity there. And then it closes again by 25, but our brain can change forever. It's just harder the older you get because you have to actually physically <laughs> make yourself do those things. Whereas as a teacher, if you're teaching these young brains, you have an amazing opportunity here to help them um, become resilient and strong and better learners. It's exciting, Selena. That's the area that I'm, my expertise sits in that young adolescent period. And uh, it, it's an area that teachers love to hear about and they, they love to get insights and, and, and real strategies around um, enhancing brain work. Especially, you know, during that synaptic process. Yeah, because yeah. we want to we want to prevent mental health disorders. So, um, it's another way. So you can't you can't go back and change someone when they're born up until the age of three. We we will be we're doing that, and other people are doing that work to teach people the neuroscience of early life experiences and how that actively wires the brain. But kids are now ten and fourteen, or they're now eighty. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And so not everyone got this knowledge in time. So we have now the capacities to still do something is what I'm saying. That's the beauty of neuroplasticity. That's why we're having this these conversations, isn't it? Because we want to help people understand that it's never over, that there's always these opportunities for change if you choose to see them. And honestly, the first and best place to start is with yourself. And so how, how do you see, Donna, that we can um, help? What would you see as someone with a lot of experience in this field? How can we help to help the teachers and their practices? I, I think that there's a couple of ways. And I think initial teacher education, it's just so crucial that we um, study the brain and neuroscience as part of the learning that takes place to prepare people to become teachers. So I think having a deep understanding of neuroscience is absolutely crucial. It's, it's like a, a fundamental component. Is that currently in the programs? Look, it, it's, um, it is part of the programs, but I don't know that it, it necessarily goes far enough because I think that's an area where our programs could um, benefit with some applications. So in understanding the brain, um, what does that therefore mean for, for learning, for strategies, for you know, the ways in which we operate as teachers? And I think we talked about it earlier, that notion of intentionality. So when, when our um, young learners, and I use young as in new to the profession, when, when people are becoming a teacher and they're developing their capabilities through the first years of induction, it's about that keeping this in mind as of the reason why you might choose a pedagogical approach and thinking about preparing myself, as you said, going into the classroom to present myself as a learner and to be a 
over, over the top. We haven't got to that stage where we use it as an absolutely fundamental element of the planning that takes place in the applications for everyone. You know, some many, many do, but I don't know that it's necessarily embedded across the system. And then I think that applies for professional learning, the same kind of situation. So not everybody has um, been in a position to really develop a deep understanding of the latest that we know about neuroscience the last 10 years. Uh, many have, and that's had a great impact. But I think we're in that transition phase where we can still continue to harness the power that sits in this space for full benefit. So um, that would be my assessment overall. I think okay. Exciting. I think the translation, translation from that neuroscience into practice in the classroom, that's a really exciting space. And that translation is where you've got the need for experts to come together. Uh, experts like yourself as a neuroscientist and experts, teachers coming together and work out how does that translation work on an ongoing way in the classroom every day to optimise what we know. Yes, and also giving the children an opportunity to be compassionate to themselves and a, and a space to go to because all the brains are so different, to have the other spaces to go to where they can get more prepared because everyone's going to be coming in at different levels. Yes. And so we need to have those spaces so that they can catch up in a sense too. And um, we have lots of examples of that where that's been very successful at something called the engine room where kids that had um, the most stressed out brains um, would go to um, three hours a day and um, we'd do neuro neuroplasticity training, basically, um, to, yeah. And I think in, in focusing on students, um, self-regulation becomes crucial because that's where that ability to be part of your own learning and understanding cognition and, and having a, a view of the world as a learner and your comment about a love of learning lifelong learning and love of learning it, it has to be embedded within individual it's, it comes from within and so getting to that stage of understanding and appreciating um, that space means that you really need to understand metacognition and as a personally each person needs to understand that so sharing this knowledge with students not doing it to them but sharing yeah. it with them and this part of their understanding as well is crucial to that. So, so I think that's the other component is, is you know, bringing our students on board too. Exactly. And, yeah, empowering them to be their own best learner. Learn. Know, so as my daughter said to me, it's learning to say no to yourself, how to, ter how to turn off the Netflix and start studying, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much, um, Donna, for your insights, for all your hard work, for supporting the teachers, for helping um, us learn new ways to help them, to take, for taking this to the teachers too and working out simple ways we can do that. I really thank appreciate it. It's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you about this today and um, so excited about what's ahead for us. Yes, me too. Thank you for being on the Thriving Minds podcast. Thank you.